And welcome on this Saturday morning to Green Thumb from Hair Nursery, heard every Saturday at 7 o'clock. Hello, I'm Dan DiOrio, along with Ethan Wise, and also on the show is Steve the Plant. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, what, uh, Does Steve have a microphone? No, he doesn't, but he does wave his leaves oh, okay. around sometimes uh, to communicate. <laughs> Uh, but shake he, once for yes, shake two for yeah, no. Yeah, he was very scared the uh, the other morning when we had the storms roll through. He does not like storms, <laughs> and so we had to take him away from the window and kind of hide him somewhere. Uh, so so he, I'll have to get Steve a thunder buddy. Yeah. So yeah. So Steve Steve needs Steve needs a a, a friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, if you've been listening to the show, uh, I this is something that has been around since the '60s, like Bigfoot the legend of Mothman, and it has been seen flying around as nearby as Chicago. So Steve's new assignment is to watch for Mothman. And then, I'm going to hold Steve accountable for any <laughs> missed sighting. And if, and if he sees Mothman, he's going to have to wave his leaves frantically so we can and point towards out the window. So, uh, But Steve's doing well. And we hopefully had, he doesn't cry wolf too much. No. Yeah. We haven't watered them yet, but I may water them next week. You say, uh, look, uh, with those plants, the it's like once a month, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the 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 Sansevieria snake plants about once a month is really all I do for mine. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I'll wait until they start to look a little pruney. Yeah, um, and they kind of look sunken, and then I'm like, okay, now it needs a little bit of a drink. Mm-hmm. All but right, is best. Uh, so we're playing the home version of the Green Thumb game, Hair Nursery, on HairNursery.com, H-O-E-R-R. Uh, we'll be doing that a little bit later on, and we'll be doing drought-tolerant gardens. You go to the website, and you go down to where it says Free Landscape Designs. You click on that, and then you can click on the drought-tolerant gardens, and uh, we'll be doing that a little bit later on. Uh, but there are some good mm-hmm. questions that are coming in, and this one really caught my eye. I found a dead hummingbird by my feeder. Did the nectar kill it? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that um, I say isn't a common question, but it's certainly not an uncommon question. And I uh, had a, this was a question that I helped someone with uh, not quite two weeks ago. Um, so, but uh, it feels like it was longer than last week. Sorry, my memory is kind of faded. But uh, I spoke with a lady who came in, and uh, she uh, had found and took a picture of a, of a dead hummingbird that was underneath her uh, hummingbird feeder. And she said, oh, my gosh, what happened? You know, like she's like, I didn't really poke and prod at it or anything, but I didn't see any signs of attacks, you know, like no cat or something. And I said, well, likely, yeah, if a cat or a raccoon or something like that had found it, they would have eaten it. I said it wouldn't be there. Um, I said, uh, how long has your nectar been in the hummingbird feeder? And she said, well, I think maybe a couple of days, you know, it hadn't emptied as fast as she wanted to. And so I said, well, my suggestion would be to um, change out the nectar. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to make her feel uh, guilty. I mean, when people are putting out hummingbird feeders, they're doing it with the best intentions. Um, they want to provide nectar to an animal that, they, that they're fascinated by. And so I, I don't want anyone to feel bad if this has happened. It is a sad thing. But 
um, it, it's it's something that you know if you don't know, then you can't resolve the problem. And so, what can happen with the uh, hummingbird feeders? It's essentially sugar water. That's all hummingbird nectar is, um, because it's very much what nectar is itself. Is it's a high sugar content fluid, um, and that's part of the reason why hummingbirds love it so much. I mean, their hearts are beating. Um, Gosh, I mean, like, uh, I don't even know how many times a minute. I would imagine close to the amount of times that their wings are flapping a minute, um, which is about 100 or so. And uh, so their their metabolism is through the roof, and they're constantly flying. So needing that sugar water is uh, is very helpful for them, um, but they also burn through it very quickly because of how fast their metabolism is. And so that's why shortly after they drink um, contaminated nectar, uh, within 30 minutes, they could be dead from it because it is circulated through their system so quickly due to their metabolism. But what happens, especially in too much sun and too high of heat, is that sugar water could become a, uh, a house for a fungal or a bacterial pathogen. Um, and that's because both bacteria and fungus love to eat sugar. Um, it's sustaining, it's nutritional, um, uh, they can store it. And so when they have this, you know, container that's maybe, you know, just didn't get cleaned as, as well as it could have been, uh, or maybe that's not even a factor, maybe it's not airtight. And so some pathogen was able to get in that way. Uh, and then they can slowly take over the, uh, the nectar and it becomes contaminated for the uh, hummingbird. So in this sort of heat, I strongly recommend that you change your nectar out daily and also a way that you can prevent um, possibilities uh, of problems would be to um, not have it in full sun. Keep it in a shaded area. Put it under a tree. And they like the nectar under the tree anyway uh, because it offers them protection from predators. It provides them shade, provides them a branch they can rest on. Um, so that's usually an ideal spot. I have seen hummingbirds fly up to a tree branch and sit for a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They they got a rest. I mean, I can't imagine <laughs> if a hummingbird was an Olympic runner. Yeah, I feel like we would see them be rather competitive. Um, do they when do they sleep? Do you know? Uh, they'll sleep at night. Yeah, they'll they'll uh, usually like a pair if there's a pair of them together. Um, males and females will sometimes lay claim to a certain um, hummingbird feeder, um, and some people have probably noticed that uh, hummingbirds uh, can be rather defen- uh, defensive of certain areas. But yeah, they'll sleep next to each other. They'll kind of cuddle up to each other and, and sit on a branch, and it's kind of cute if you have a chance to see it. Yeah, I did. I saw ones fly up to a branch. I go, I never knew they sit, but I go, they got to sit sometime. So. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I can <laughs> run it on overdrive all the time. Um, here's another one. My apple crab apple tree has spots on the leaves. Do I need to spray something yeah. on it? This is common um, a lot this time of year. July, August, uh, we get a lot of questions, um, people coming in with leaves, and it's for their from their apple or their crab apple tree, and it's either – uh, you know, green leaf with lots of brown spots all over it, or it's a, um, a leaf that has these orangish, uh, yellow spots all over it. And the one that has uh, so commonly this time of year, I'm not saying it, it could be something else, um, bringing in leaf samples uh, or pictures is the best thing for us to help identify. But common ones right now, the brown spots could be a scab um, on your apple tree. Or the orangish-yellow blotchy spots uh, could be cedar apple rust. 
And right now, it's a little late to spray for them. Both of those are fungal pathogens, and both of them um, usually overwinter, um, and therefore the best time to spray is in early spring. You, for both of them, the best time to spray uh, is during bud break. So when leaves and flowers are starting to emerge, that is the best time to spray. And if you have in the past had heavy infections of scab or leaf um, or cedar apple rust, I'm sorry, uh, then you might need to spray every 7 to 14 days um, until the, the plant is fully leafed out. Um, and well, I'm sorry, until the, the flowers have dropped. So spray until buds open all the way until bud uh, flowers drop. Um, and so that could be um, maybe anywhere from two to four sprays on average, depending on how often you are spraying. Um, and most over-the-counter fungicides will help treat this. Um, but if you didn't, and you, you didn't spray in spring, and you're noticing this these infections on your trees, it can be startling because, A, it's 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 aesthetic. You see it. Um, and B, it can also cause leaf drop. The nice thing is, is that it very rarely will kill your tree. It's certainly not going to kill it within a year. It could take multiple years of never treating this disease on the plant for it to actually kill the plant. However, it can um, infect the fruit and therefore uh, possibly damage your yield um, for, for fruit collection. Uh, but outside of that, you know, I don't want people to stress if they're noticing this, like, oh, my gosh, I need to treat this ASAP. It's killing my tree. I'm losing my leaves. By the time a tree loses its leaves this time of year, and I tell people the same thing for Japanese beetles, uh, beetle damage, is uh, the trees already had months and months and months and months to photosynthesize. Therefore, it's storing food um, and, and has that in reserve. So if it defoliates partially during the summer months, that's not necessarily going to kill the plant. Um, there's a good chance that it could even push off on certain species of trees. They can push off new growth come fall and have an opportunity to photosynthesize and store nutrients um, going into winter. Um, so if you notice, going back to the fungus, if you notice that being a problem, uh, don't stress, uh, get some fungicide in spring next year, whenever the garden centers open in March, um, you can come in, you can get something. Uh, we have a broad spectrum fungicide. Um, we have a systemic fungicide, uh, both of which have, um, active chemicals that will, that will help control this fungus, but don't stress about spraying it now. It's kind of a waste of time, um, and money to spray a fungicide. if that is what you were noticing on your plant this late in the season. All right. Um, uh, there's another tree question, uh, and I never noticed this, brown crunchy margins. What is that? Yeah, so the margin of the leaf is, is literally the outside layer of the leaf. Um, so that whole outer portion uh, of the leaf is what we refer to as the margin. And this time of year, especially on new plantings, you might notice in this sort of heat that your plant has uh, starting to get crispy from the outside working its way in. And there's a possibility that what you're noticing is leaf scorch. Um, so once again, uh, best thing to do is, uh, because there's, there's lots of things, you know, there's never just one thing that can bother a plant at any given moment. Um, but this would be a common thing you could be noticing right now, but also uh, still worth bringing a picture and sending a picture in uh, or bringing a sample so that we could properly identify. But like I said, a common thing you might be noticing is the brown crunchy margins of, of your leaf. And 
what that could be caused by is a lack of water um, that's also exacerbated by the heat that we are having. And we'll notice that sometimes happen in container trees that we have. Um, you know, you'll, you'll look for trees in summer and you might come across a tree that's got some brown tips to it or brown, uh, brown margins. And it's not because the tree is unhealthy or has a disease. It's simply because uh, when you have a large tree in a container, it's very difficult to maintain adequate moisture. Um, some of our trees are rather big. And so you have this very large tree um, in you know, a container that's only 18 inches wide. Now, yes, it can survive in that and it can do rather well for a couple of years in that sort of container. Um, but it's root bound, so and, and there's only so much soil. So eventually, it dries out. And for the most part, uh, nurseries are really good about maintaining the watering of their trees. But every once in a while, in this sort of heat, you you might miss a few, or you don't adequately keep them watered. And this same thing can apply to new plantings in people's yards. You got to consider that the hole that you dug is rather small. So all of your roots are in one small area, and if you don't water adequately, then it dries out pretty quickly. Uh, and that's what, what happens then is it causes the brown crunchy margins on the leaf that you are seeing. And sometimes this is also uh, has to do with uh, transpiration on the leaf. Transpiration, the best way I can describe it is, is kind of like us sweating. Uh, the, the, the leaf is losing water through its, or the plant is losing water through its leaves. Um, and that can also exacerbate that crunchy margin that you might see. So I don't want people to necessarily stress if they're seeing that. Continue to water your plant adequately. You might need to up it a little bit during the heat of these months. Um, plants that are very susceptible and very common to see this time of year, especially if you planted them this year, dogwoods, Japanese maples, hydrangeas, hostas, ferns, all these plants uh, – tend to be a little bit more susceptible to drying out quickly, uh, especially in their first summer at their first new home. Well, even um, some so of my... Uh, don't stress about it. Yeah, so even some of my older hosta that are more in the sun, they'll they'll stress out a little bit too. If you don't give them enough water, you go through about a week or so dry period. You can see it even on some of the uh, plants that have been around a little bit longer. All right, so let's go to the vegetable garden. People are seeing some insect damage. Uh, and so what do they do? Yeah, so a lot of people are commenting um, on just holes or stuff that they're seeing in their leaves. Uh, and I want people to kind of um, not overly stress about it. You know, there's there's certainly a degree when you're noticing that the plant is obviously failing and it is not doing well and you're noticing a lot of holes on the leaves, then yes, it's, it's worth... Um, focusing on, on is it the insect that is causing my plant to fail. However, if your plants are doing totally fine, they're really healthy, they're vigorous, they're full, they're actively growing, but you see some damage on the leaves, don't stress about it. Bugs are hungry too. Um, that's all they're trying to do. You know, the, you grow something that they happen to like, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to kill your plant. Like currently in my garden, my broccoli um, has nibble marks all over it from little bugs. You know, probably some beetles have chewed on it. Some caterpillars have chewed on it a little bit. But they're still growing, uh, you know, a couple inches a day at this rate. My broccoli is huge. It's, there's no, it's not any worse for wear because it has holes in its leaves. Um, same with my grapes. 
um, or, or I have one grape. Uh, my grapevine is, is doing really well. It's very happy, um, but it's a common plant for, for pests to go after. Japanese beetles like it um, and, and other, chewing beetle, uh, other chewing beetles and uh, larvae of caterpillar or, sorry, larvae of um, uh, moths and butterflies, uh, which are caterpillars, sorry, <laughs> um, tend to like that plant as well. So I got nibble marks all over my grape leaves, but the grape is still growing. It's growing about a foot a day, it seems like, um, and it's producing fruit. So I find it not necessary to spray those plants because the plants are doing just fine. I have enough plant to go around to make myself happy and to feed the hungry, starving insects that are, are currently around right now. You know, with that, like if the plant's healthy and you're seeing some nibble marks on it, I, I don't think it's necessary to spray kind of an unnecessary uh, use of chemicals and you're, you're putting them in your garden. It's, if you don't notice the plant failing, I don't think it's worth spraying. Now, there are certain things that, that can uh, start to really damage your plants. So I, I, I totally understand when people want to spray for Japanese beetles. You know, Japanese beetles can work very quickly. They can defoliate your plant very quickly. But it goes back to what I was saying when I was addressing uh, fungal leaf drop on apples. This time of year, your plant has photosynthesized for months. And so even though you see the Japanese beetles um, on your plant, they aren't going to kill your plant. Um, so, but I also understand, you know, Japanese beetles can completely ravish uh, a plant very quickly. So sure, go ahead, spray them, um, uh, and, uh, hit those, uh, suckers with, uh, seven, or, uh, if you want to use something organic, pyrethrin works, um, or insecticidal soap. Insecticidal soap is something you can spray a little bit more often. Uh, I would say on, on a heavy infestation, like say you're noticing slugs and caterpillars are killing your hostas or Japanese beetles are completely decimating your roses and you don't have a single flower on them. Um, you could use insecticidal soap uh, and you can use that two, three days in a row. And then I recommend, you know, giving your plant to break, you know, wait seven days before spraying again. But some of the tougher chemicals, even some of the uh, organic ones like pyrethrin, um, uh, or some of the, the non-organic ones like Carborol, which is the active ingredient for seven, those I really recommend not spraying more than once or twice a week on your plant, um, just because it could start to have adverse effects on your plants. Also, if you feel the need to spray your plants, I do recommend doing that early morning or in the evening. If you spray during the heat of your day, you run the possibility of, of chemical burn um, on your plants. So just be cautious of when you are spraying. You know, my uncle had fungal leaf drop, and we had to use salve, so, but I don't want to get into that. All right, so let's go to the home <laughs> version. The home version of Green Thumb. Go on the Hair Nursery website. Uh, you just scroll down a little bit. Do you see free line, uh, landscape uh, designs? And we've gone over three of them so far. This one we're going to go over today is a drought-tolerant garden. And, boy, coming off some of the heat we've had, I'm sure a lot of people would yeah, have liked super this. Super relevant time to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and what's great about it is they'll kind of give you an, a, a, a design outlook, uh, how big they are, but they'll give you the approximate cost of the plant material. And a lot of them are about 240 to 260. In fact, this one's uh, approximate cost 265 in a 14 by 8 garden but the good thing about it is once you spend that money that's it's done these are all perennials so let's start with the mm -hmm. north wind switchgrass oh yeah so grasses in in general they're just 
they're hardy plants. Most grasses, so not just if you're looking at the design plan, you're going to see a couple of them on here. You see the north wind switchgrass and you see big blue stem. And both of them are very hardy, but not just them. Um, miscanthus or maidenhair grass is going to be very hardy. Feather reed grass, um, like Carl Forrester, which is a very popular one in our area, is also very hardy. So um, just because we have north wind switchgrass, and big blue stem listed here doesn't mean that that's necessarily what um, you need to be married to as far as what you want to plant in your garden. But uh, the reason why they were selected is is because of um, uh, different aesthetics that they can provide to your garden. So Northwind is a very upright vertical grass. It's not a spiller. It doesn't spread too heavily. And so if you're working in a tight space, um, which is what the design is kind of uh, of measure to. It's like you said, it's, um, uh, what is it, a 12 by 14? Yeah, 12, or 14 by 8 garden. So that's not a massive garden. So uh, to get an ornamental grass that's going to grow upright, uh, A, it provides different texture. It's not going to get overwhelmingly wide, um, and it can provide long season interest. Those flower heads that ornamental grasses can last well into fall and winter, um, and they're super uh, easy to care for. Once they get established, like, yeah, you need to water them well once they're getting established. But after that, uh, ornamental grasses can have really deep roots. Um, they become drought tolerant. They have thin leaves, so they're not transpiring as much. They're not, so, so they're not losing water through their leaves. Um, and they're relatively uh, pest resistant too, which is also nice. Uh, blue wild indigo. Um, and this yes. almost looks like it's in the mint family, but is it? No, no, it's not. Um, so it's, its botanical name is Baptisia. Um, so it's also uh, commonly referred to as Baptisia. Um, but yes, it does have those those bluish purple spiked flowers that from a distance absolutely look like they would belong in the mint family. But once you get up close, they do have a relatively different flower shape to them. Um, and it's a much bigger flower. Um, so Baptisia uh, or wild indigo, uh, indigo can get kind of big. It can get three plus feet tall and wide. Um, it can grow um, uh, very quick. It all, it also, it'll be dormant like uh, we spoke about um, uh, on a previous episode about hibiscus, tropical hibiscus, or I'm sorry, uh, perennial hibiscus, how fast that can grow in a month. Baptisia can do the same thing. It'll be dormant, just nothing. And then all of a sudden, Three weeks later, you have a two-and-a-half-foot-tall plant. Uh, it's, it's bananas. But it's, a, it's an early-season bloomer, so mid to late spring is when it flowers. Uh, I'd say it probably lasts a couple weeks or so. Um, it's very stunning during that, those couple weeks, like a lilac is. Um, but then it's kind of done flowering. But it's a great thing to add in there, especially in this garden, um, of the plants that we have listed here, because it's going to be probably the first uh, flowering thing that you see. Now, uh, the yucca plant, Color Guard yucca, you grow up in the southwest. I would think that's where they would na normally, natively would be, but you say they grow up in the more in the southeast. Yes, so there, there are some yucca plants that grew in, in New Mexico, 
um, but not too often. Um, so yes, uh, more of a southeastern plant. You'll see them uh, kind of all over the map in uh, Arkansas and uh, the eastern parts of Texas, and uh, you'll even see them in northern areas of Alabama and Georgia uh, that are a little bit more uh, dry versus uh, the parts that are closer to the water. But it's extremely drought tolerant. It's essentially um, a cacti in its own way um, or succulent, kind of like sedum. And it's very drought tolerant. The only thing I warn people about as far as yucca goes, there's not a whole lot of cons uh, with it. Kind of like a shark, nothing really bothers it. Uh, is pretty much where you plant it is where it's going to be. So make sure that where you plant your yucca, you're happy with it, because once it gets established, it develops a very, very, very deep taproot, um, and removal of that plant can be difficult uh, because it can grow another one from the taproot in a couple years. Even if you dig down a couple feet, uh, but you don't completely get that taproot out, it'll come back like a dandelion. Not to say that it's a weed. It's a very nice, especially color guard. It's very compact, under two feet tall and wide. So it's not a plant that's weed-like in the sense that it's going to spread or take over. It's just once it's established, that's its home. Um, so just be prepared for that. But it's really nice looking, green, yellowish, white. It'll produce a white flower spike on it. Uh, and it's probably one of the most drought tolerant plants that you could plant in your garden. I, I would say the only thing else that you could put in your garden that's more drought tolerant is a rock. Yeah. Um, the yucca plant, I didn't know that it has um, um, flowers, but and they, they can get pretty tall. Oh, yeah. Um, a, a yucca flower spike could be now on, on the color guard species that's on this list here, it probably wouldn't get bigger than maybe three or four feet tall. But on other varieties of yucca, the uh, big green ones, sometimes referred to as Adam's needle, um, those flower spikes can be six feet tall, big, huge flower spikes. Uh, the next one is coneflower, which we've talked about before. I love coneflower mm -hmm. because not only is it drought tolerant, it's great for uh, butterflies. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like a landing pad for them. Um, and, and, yeah, we've talked about uh, uh, coneflowers on, on other design plans, and it comes up regularly. It's such a common plant. It's drought tolerant. Um, it's a Some of the common ones that you buy now are species that were hybridized from the native that's here in Illinois called Echinacea purpurea, which is a, a based on that name, you can kind of tell it's a purple flower, um, and it can reseed itself. Some of the new varieties aren't as heavily able to reseed themselves or even able to reseed themselves as well, so they just stay in the spot that you planted them. Um, but yeah, there's so many different colors, sizes. You can get coneflower that could be three feet tall. You can get coneflower that stays under two feet tall. Reds, orange, yellows, purples, whites, um, double flowered ones. It's great. It's also a great plant if you like birds. Um, birds are attracted to them. Uh, they, they nibble the seeds off of them. So it's not just great for pollinator gardens, but it's great for kind of creating an ecosystem. You're not only providing for the insects, but you're providing for the birds, um, which is also very helpful too. Yeah. Goldfinches. I love goldfinches. Oh, yeah, that you'll see them. If you have some coneflower um, or, or you have like thistle, which maybe people don't really want in their yard, but finches love thistle. They go bananas for it. 
All right, about uh, five minutes left. Uh, one we talked about last week, very versatile as Russian sage, and that's another one that's very drought-tolerant. Very drought-tolerant. Uh, purple flowers last all summer long. Uh, you'll see it planted in medians um, or around parking lots, areas that are totally neglected, and it's thriving. You'll also see yucca in those areas as well. Uh, that color guard yucca and that purple Russian sage work really well together with that purple-yellow combination, and truly, uh, they just they don't die. Um, sedum we talked about before. Now, I have sedum, and I think I have this stone crop sedum. Um, mine it works very yes. well in shade. It gets late, late sun and does very well, mm -hmm. and it's kind of spread. Um, but you even say they'll work well in the heat, too, right? Pretty much wherever. And, yeah, I don't think you and I could say enough good things about sedum. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much where you plant it is where it's happy to be as long as it's not in too much moisture, uh, as long as it's not ever in standing water uh, or grounds, you know, heavy clay that, that tends to get moist for a long period of time. Other than that, it's great. As long as its root system can dry out in between waterings, pretty much where you plant it, sun or shade, it's happy to be there. Uh, it's a very, very hardy plant. You can get it in clumping varieties, mounding varieties, creeping varieties. Um, there are so many different sedums. Uh, I love it. I have the creeping varieties. I have trailing ground cover sedums in my south-facing garden, and they just they take over. I mean, it's, uh, it's probably grown two feet this year. Um, my little cluster of sedum that I planted last year. It's very impressive. They love the heat. Yeah, and they and it's a good late bloomer if you're looking for that. And then finally, a yarrow. Um, don't know yes. much about yarrow. I love yarrow. Yarrow is one of my favorite plants. Um, there's uh, the traditional yellow, and now there's uh, really fun new color varieties, reds and oranges and pinks um, and peachy tones. Uh, all kinds of, uh, even some that are almost a purpley tone, but they probably still advertise it as being a pink. Um, but I have two yarrows, both of them south-facing uh, in my garden. And they, once, you know, upon planting, you need to water them really well. But then once they get established, they are so drought tolerant. So I planted my yarrow earlier this season. And about uh, for about two weeks, I was needing to meticulously water this plant. And now it's one of the few plants that I can come home from on a long day here at Hair Nursery. I can come home at 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock, and it looks fine. You know, it's not weeping and exhausting and panting. Uh, it's totally fine. I love this plant, very drought tolerant, long bloom time, lots of colors to pick from, and also like coneflower, a great little landing pad for uh, pollinators like butterflies to land on. And finally, the most drought tolerant of all, stones yeah sometimes i sometimes i have to tell people it sounds like you need a rock yeah um <laughs> you know if if they need this spot and and you know everyone has different or busier lives and people want something that looks beautiful but they just don't have the time to maintain it um and sometimes it based upon how often they can garden or what size they're looking for um or how much yeah how much water they're going to get it uh i i 
sometimes say, you know what? Don't underestimate the power of some good rocks in your garden. And we sell big, huge boulders. We sell medium-sized boulders. I mean, you and I walked through there. There's uh, oh. really cool, colorful ones, mm-hmm. bowling ball-sized green rocks, black rocks, red rocks. And they can really fill the space in and look really nice if you if you plan it out correctly in your garden. And rocks that weather, and of course, mulch is a key into a drought area just to help mm-hmm. retain some of the water. But yeah, but the stone garden, it'd, it'd be fun to walk around. And in a drought-tolerant area, uh, you can get some great landscape designs. Well, that's the home version of Hair Nursery as we wrap things up. Ours? Hours, uh, Monday through Friday, 8 to 6, and we still have Hardy Bucks in full swing. You can come in and spend your Hardy Bucks through August 15th. And it's never too late to garden or add some color in a spot that maybe you had something that died out. Uh, You could always go to Hair Nursery and find a replacement. And then uh, um, it's never uh, too late to develop a new flower bed now that you got everything under control. Well, for Ethan Wise, I'm Dan DiOrio. Thanks for listening to Hair Nursery on WMBD. See you next Saturday at 7.